0: Right. well ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out today on another wonderful and temperate Friday, and no doubt we are uh, um, playing against a uh, very beautiful day out here. So all the more reason to thank you for coming out, and it is my great pleasure and distinction to uh, introduce our honorable speaker today, in addition to give a brief background on the school for those of you who are new. So, first the school, and then I'll go into our introduction. Our school is the Institute of World Politics. We are a graduate school of national security and international affairs, focusing on the ethical practice of statecraft anchored firmly in the American tradition. And of course, uh, by no means uh, far away from the center of that tradition is the Constitution. Uh, And that today, I believe, is the 230th anniversary of the Constitution. Is that right? Almost a quarter of a thousand years. with that being said, uh, it's my awareness that we are on the record today, so if you are going to ask questions at the end of today's lecture, just feel free to introduce your name and your affiliation in the interests of collegiality. And I'm going to uh, introduce our speaker now. Without further ado, uh, William B. Allen, who's an Emeritus Professor of Political Philosophy in the Department of Political Science, and he is an Emeritus Dean at James Madison College at Michigan State University. He served previously on the United States National Council for the Humanities and is a chairman and member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. I believe that was in the late 80's. Recently he served as an associate pastor for the First Baptist Church and a Veritas Fund Senior Fellow in the Matthew J. Ryan Center for the study of free institutions and the public good at Villanova University, he has also published extensively, including the following works: Rethinking Uncle Tom, The Political Philosophy of H. B. Stowe, George Washington, America's First Progressive, and a host of others, which are also uh, available online if you were to type in his name. And I could think uh, from my humble standpoint of no better person today to to tribute our uh, Constitution on our annual Constitution Day lecture and serves a great honor for you to be here and I thank you so much for being here. So let's give him a warm round of applause and I will cede the floor to you, sir. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be able to spend a few minutes with you in honor of the Constitution. And that means, of course, not only the drafting of the Constitution in 1787, or the ratification of the Constitution in 1788, but more particularly, the life of the Constitution. So, so I'm really here to talk about us, when I say I've come to talk about the Constitution. But let me, by way of preliminaries, first simply say how grateful I am to have the opportunity to revisit IWP The last time i spoke in this room it was at a convocation now it seems as if it were an eon ago but nevertheless i've remained in close contact with the president and dean and others here at the school since that time and i've been particularly impressed by the steadiness and the growth and productivity of this program so for those of you who are participating in it i I want to congratulate you. With that said, I want to turn to the Constitution and as you know, the uh, title of today's remarks is the Constitution of our character. And so I might as well say right off the top that I mean the double sense in that title. I mean to say that our characters have some relationship to the Constitution to be certain and also that the Constitution itself has a certain character. And so the burden of these brief remarks will be to try to elucidate the significance of those observations. Now I'm going to share with you some selections from a much longer talk on this subject designed to highlight those points, I think, to be most salient for contemporary consideration. So it is not an historical talk. Though I certainly want to invite you to feel free to raise historical questions in the question period and I intend to leave ample time for such questions. But for now, bear with me. Travel with me through some observations and reflections on who we are. In our times we become increasingly accustomed to define freedom in terms of individual and constituency preferences. The freedoms thus targeted seem in the main to identify a right to act with immunity to social constraint as opposed to legal constraint. Now to be sure Legal constraint may become a barrier to personal choice that illegitimately entrenches social constraint. Let me fairly be said to be the circumstance in which laws and mores have evolved in the realm of same-sex relationships. The list of personal preferences, otherwise constrained by social disapprobation, however, is much broader than what is suggested in same sex relationships and indeed opens upon what has come to be recognized as identity construction. A consequence of this development is a discourse of freedom increasingly focused upon individual conduct as an exception to social expectation. That is such a strange diminution of the concept of freedom, such a lowering or dumbing down of the idea of freedom, that it is appropriate for us to inquire anew into the elements of freedom that characterize the founding of the United States. Beyond the superficial political and social divisions that seem to drive the narrative of freedom in the present hour, there lies a deeper and perhaps unperceived source of conflict I characterize that conflict as the false choice between the comfort of the least and the potential of the best, which is often posed as a choice between the common good and individualism. In reality, however, the distinction amounts to opposed dispositions To see people in general as patients of caring Or as agents of accomplishment or achievement It would be fair to say That at the founding the tendency was to identify the prospects of social advance Or progress with realizing the potential of the best While lately social progress has come Increasingly to be identified with the comfort of the least that has produced a turn away from alliance upon sturdy yeomen toward viewing citizens primarily as wards of the state. Now, a curious illustration of this dynamic is conveyed in the much discussed inquiry pursued by Thomas Jefferson in Notes on the State of Virginia, where in Query 14, Jefferson highlights over and above express bigotry and political reservations, an explicit argument about the capacity and eligibility of blacks to exert themselves sufficiently to rise to the potential of the best. He plainly meant by this to underscore what he took to be the foundation of community in the United States, which celebrated freedom or liberty built upon expectations for the potential of the best. Jefferson doubted whether the slaves could benefit from freedom and believed that only persons who could do so would qualify for citizenship. We might presume that Jefferson focused exclusively on agency and not at all on caring. But we observed that he did describe with sympathy the misery of the blacks in that same query. And looking into the face of that misery in query 18, Jefferson concluded, that the man must be a prodigy who can retain his manners and morals undepraved by such circumstances. Following that passage, he went on to say that he trembled for his country if God is just. In other words, Jefferson acknowledged that while seeking to build grace and beauty on a temple of liberty, he also recognized that his countrymen placed all at risk by embracing what they thought the potential of the best while eschewing the comfort of the least. In reply to the suspicion that Jefferson's statements in these contexts were mere rhetorical throwaways, I would insist that they should rather be read as responses to Socratic questioning regarding the end of the polis. In them, Jefferson has acknowledged the good the polis aims at while disclosing its failure to uphold the good. Jefferson is a worst case example. If the worst case testifies to the strength of the founding identification of liberty or freedom with the potential of the best, then we might with confidence elaborate the consequences and the hopeful anticipations of that view, in doing which we will discover the foundation for character as the basis of that politics. Jefferson tacitly disclosed that foundation when he described the effects of slavery upon the master and all associated in such mastery as depravity. That is, Jefferson described the fatal consequences in character for what we may call Hobbesian liberty, the exercise of arbitrary power over others. By reflection, therefore, we discover that the liberty or freedom Jefferson pursued was a non-Hobbesian freedom, dependent upon strength of character. That is, the potential or agency of the best could only be advanced upon the grounds of such a liberty as preserved individual autonomy without admitting despotic authority over any other individual. In his historic speech to Congress on January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt Proclaimed four freedoms as essential To democracy Freedom of speech and expression Freedom of worship Freedom from want Freedom from fear The careful balancing Of speech and worship With want and fear Could not conceal the fact of a turn toward defining freedom as requiring the absence of external negative factors. The typical example is poverty, I quote. Positive liberals believe that poverty, that is lack of money, infringes on freedom. This is the practical example of what it has meant to define freedom down, the dumbing down of freedom. Roosevelt, however, did not originate the movement away from the fundamental meaning of freedom at the founding. The theoretical architects of that progression occupied the stage in the 19th and 20th centuries. By emphasizing the comfort of the least, this discourse abandoned the founding aspiration to found social progress in the potential of the best. As a result, it obscured the distinction between a patient of caring or an agent of accomplishment. This dichotomy between caring and agency does not suggest contradictions, but it does suggest contraries properly understood. Thus, they're not mutually exclusive. They're rather differentially relevant. Caring is a social value, as it is a reflection of character, but a social liability when it erodes character. The potential of the best. The exertions of the best connotes not any and every relative difference among human beings, but rather only differences in intelligences and character. The goal to maximize opportunities for the best intelligences and best characters as a definition of freedom is precisely to enable the maximum degree of social advance overall. This difference is captured in the mutually exclusive dynamics of dependence and independence At one end of the scale, complete dependence, there is no capacity or competence for effective agency At the other end of the scale, complete independence, there is no contribution to a larger social purpose Thus, it requires intelligence and character, the disposition of social responsibility to produce the social progress freedom seeks to engender. And that requires maximizing, not merely optimizing, the number of persons who can act with effective agency and minimizing the number sunk in complete dependence. In this light, it is clear that education rightly conducted is the most efficient instrument for the reallocation or redistribution of social values, social capital. By rightly conducted, I mean that education that induces as great independence and as little dependence as possible. That is the education of agency as opposed to the education of victimhood. We see concrete evidence of this in the environment of contemporary healthcare, care, where practitioners now routinely recognize the importance of engaging patients in the decision-making regarding their course of treatment rather than merely requiring their compliance with expert determinations. The turn toward emphasizing the comfort of the least as the essence of freedom accordingly has resulted in disabling the necessary social resources required to sustain social progress. So, what happened to freedom? Let us apostrophize rather than elaborate upon the moral and philosophical presuppositions that have contributed to bringing us to our present understandings. For our purpose in this essay is not to produce criticism but to produce a systematic restatement of the elements of freedom independent of the cloud of contemporary understandings. However, it is only fair to indicate that we are aware of the context in which we are carrying on this conversation. For that purpose, it may suffice to refer to the recent work of Carl Scott, who discussed the five meanings of liberty, and in that discussion provided the missing link in these developments, which is the moral imperative present at the outset of the United States. Scott identified natural rights liberty, community self-governance liberty, economic autonomy liberty, social justice liberty, and personal autonomy liberty. As the five concepts. Then he explained how the dominant neo-progressive thought had compressed the five into the last two, which is economic autonomy, pardon me, social justice and personal autonomy, and considered those the meaningful political or policy concepts of liberty. This makes sense of the contemporary discourse, which treats liberty as enjoyment rather than as moral agency. However, this five full typology does not well capture the founding meaning of liberty, which far from invoking morally indifferent personal autonomy, embraced self-government as a personal moral obligation rather than a collective practice. The protection of natural rights was indeed the protection of the right of self-government or consent, and it is in that light alone that the right to liberty leads to a right of revolution. None of Scott's five meanings taken alone can radically ground the right of revolution, which reveals their inadequacy as explanations of liberty, no matter how well they characterize contemporary discourse. But Scott did eloquently capture the neo-progressive transformation that led to obscuring the right of revolution, and hence the true understanding of liberty, and I will quote him at length. What the progressives of the New Deal liberals feared, however, was that older American dogmas would keep the nation's democracy from directing its own social development as they envisioned. They found two dogmas particularly regrettable. The first was what they broadly denounced as individualism, by which they basically meant economic autonomy liberty. Progressives traced the roots of this individualism to the founding itself, but many of them put more blame upon economic theories of later origin. Either way, while such individualism had been a useful creed for pioneer farmers and small-town merchants to hold, the modern economy was increasingly coming to be divided into corporations and wage earners. There was no longer a frontier where one could carve out property by mixing one's labor into the land in the manner extolled by Lockean theory. Thus, belief in inviolable individual rights, and particularly the rights to contract and use property freely, actually served to further entrench the power of corporations against that of individuals close quotation. The collapse of the meaning of liberty to which Scott referred reacted not directly to the founding conceptions. Rather, it occurred in the context of an intervening and diminishing concept of liberty that had resolved into mere positive and negative liberty. The freedom to do, the freedom not to do. Now these conceptions, they were most famously elaborated by Isaiah Berlin Rightly distinguished certain functionalities involved with the conception of liberty. They failed however to discern that they identified two Aspects the obverse and the reverse of a single thing Rather than two separate things They were accordingly less nuanced than the conception already introduced by Montesquieu in the 18th century and I quote in a state That is in a society in which there are laws Liberty can only consist in being able to do that which one ought to wish and then not being coerced to do that which one ought not to wish. In short, Montesquieu recognized that to do or not to do, without reference to what is appropriate, is an empty concept. For it could not generate evaluative components that would enable the recognition of the one or the other. That is, what one person might be permitted to do could easily be the same thing another person might not be permitted to do. In that circumstance, liberty would be entirely relative and hence no more than a synonym for what did or did not occur. The diminution, the dumbing down of the meaning of liberty then, consists in its detachment from evaluative components that could identify it as an attribute of humanity. The human being on that analysis differs not at all from the penned beast save insofar as the beast that escapes an enclosure might be said to do so heedless of any reason to respect the barrier that encloses him. While the human being might break free precisely because recognizing no respect for the barrier that encloses him. But there's a world of difference between merely not accepting constraint and not conceding the legitimacy of constraint. For he who does not accept the legitimacy of constraints might yet yield to them from prudence. Thus the Declaration of Independence is language. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience have shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Such prudence, then, contains the seeds and powers of rational judgment that elevate the conception of liberty beyond mere doing and not doing. It makes of liberty first a function of deliberation and judgment that consults ends above rules. It is transcended, elevated. The transcendence appropriate to liberty is what we lost in the process God identified as producing a crabbed view of liberty. How this cashes out in our time is that we experience a crabbed politics in which claims of moral rights are translatable only as claims for governmental intervention rather than as assertions of unalienable rights. This was evident decades ago in the campaign for a school prayer amendment. It is more evident today in the campaign to defend traditional marriage through governmental recognition. While a robust assertion of rights would deny recognition of state power in this regard, a more tenuous claim of rights as governmental privileges petitions for political recognition. Yet nothing could be clearer than that the sure path to defend holy matrimony, what after all is traditional marriage given the eons of varying traditions, is by severing all connection with the state in relation to it. Most critically, however, Scott's analysis discloses a substitution for what C.B. McPherson called possessive individualism, a more radical, atomistic individualism that can be sustained only by the imposition of political legal constraints over against social expectations. We might reason that while McPherson's version was a depreciating view of liberty, it was mere materialism, it at least held the virtue of envisioning individuals so confident in their capacity to withstand the sneering of others that they were willing to undertake their personal quest with no further assurance than that no one could take from them what they acquired. The new individualism, on the other hand, cares more for government provision than for acquisition and decisively insist upon being insulated from the sneering of others. Thus, the succession of diminishing views of freedom over the course of 200 or so years has terminated in a crabbed, pigeonholed view of people subject to rules of the game, where the only meaningful deliberation is in fact merely a right of the stronger struggle to set the rules. To escape the destructive, civilization destroying implications of this evolution, it is necessary to recover a transcendent meaning of liberty. And that requires recovering a view of human and citizen that restores the primacy of human nature in grounding political association. For that was the radical breakthrough at the founding of the United States. The elements of freedom or liberty that characterize the founding were above all expectations of human character Sufficient to structure social relationships on non-coercive foundations Where the foundations are non-coercive it follows by definition that freedom or liberty cannot consist in the calibrated observance of permissions and prohibitions We can recover the prior understanding of freedom or liberty only by reacquiring those expectations of human character That led to a sanguine view about the potential of such a civilization now, what I'm describing reflects the perspective that I presented in theoretical terms in my book, The Federalist Papers of C- a Commentary, and I will quote from that. By arrangement of offices, Aristotle is talking about the arrangement of types, characters, and status within the community. It is broader than just the plan of institutions. When we speak about constitutionalism, in those broadest terms, we can substitute the expression way of life. For a way of life is a pattern that reveals the preferences of the citizens in a given community. This is the type that everyone wants to be. It is a way of life understood as a way of making choices and expressing patterns of choice that we ultimately mean by constitution. And the question is, do we live according to a pattern within this community? Do we have a way of life? The question of national character, therefore, is primarily a question of transcendent, constitutionalism, community-forming norms and practices that govern institutional and political choices. Now, what this leads to in the balance of the remarks is a survey of the possibilities open to us for advancing this conversation in a direction that leads to some conclusions about our character as it was understood at the founding, as George Washington intended when he said, we have a national character to establish. And as we recognize it today, assuming that we can claim meaningfully that there is a national character today. Among the things to consider in carrying on that conversation, one of them is to reflect the tension between law and opinion. We, of course, are accustomed to looking to law to establish the boundaries of what is permissible and what is not permissible. But we have to ask ourselves, is that custom in accord with the constitutional heritage? And as we investigate that heritage, what we discover is that it is not in accord. For the constitutional heritage reversed the relationship and made the opinion of the people the creator of the bounds that structure the terms of the constitution. So it is not the constitution that is meant to govern the people in the original view. It is the people that are meant to govern the constitution. Now, it is unreasonable to ask to live in a society in which the people can govern the Constitution unless one can put some confidence in the people. And one can't place that confidence in the people unless one can have confidence in their character. As we review arguments about law, liberal and conservative, what we discover is that they have taken two poles which seem to be mutually exclusive, and none of which adequately, in fact, addresses the dilemma that I am describing. There is rather a view that combines the two. On the one hand, the living constitution view. On the other hand, what some would derisively call the dead constitution in view, but those who are more positive would call it original intention. They are brought together in a proper understanding of the people's relationship to the constitution. Yes, of course it lives through the people and their authority over it and not as a possession of lawyers, courts, and judges. To have a living constitution that only lives on the basis of the word of a jurist is to have no constitution at all, but is rather to have what James Madison called a will independent of the society. So the argument for character as the foundation of the Constitution is ultimately an argument for rebalancing political relationships in this society. Re-calibrating our expectations of authority. Now, so the liberal and conservative arguments have a kind of apparent agreement between them in some ways. But we want to leap beyond that and to reformulate what looks like an absolutist view. And we refer to that as the protection of individual liberty. For the framers, the same objective could be phrased in the guarantee of self-government. That is, they held that whatever else the society might aim at, it must eventuate in self-government. And that phrase has a curious double meaning in the original. It is individual as well as social and could be accorded social priority only on the strength of its recognition in individuals under the form of the consent of the governed. It is a leap beyond our difficulties because it lands us amidst non-instrumental reasons for the limitations on governmental powers that have an intrinsic value apart from serving as obstacles to tyranny. The founders accepted the necessity to govern. They did not, however, see any necessity to establish an independent, powerful authority capable of governing on its own. George Washington's farewell address sets the case elegantly. His own work was completed only as his own founding authority receded and the unquestioned authority of the people emerged. Washington did not mean the suffrage or even the people's control over the institutions of government. He rather referred to a plenary authority outside of, yet somehow working through the Constitution. It lay in the sphere of self-governing, which Washington identified as a sphere of private morality in his first inaugural. The true limitations on the power of government are the limitations that people sustain over themselves as part of the affirmation of the priority of self-governing. Within the measure of that priority, the institutions of government have room for innovation. Indeed, Washington's principles suggest an inherent connection between self-government and institutionalized radicalism. That is, he expected the consistent and fervent pursuit of justice and humanity. I would maintain. That only a permanent constitution with unreachable bounds can sustain the innovations occasioned by serious self-governing. Such has been, for example, the relentless expansion of the suffrage in the United States. Had the powers of government materially changed along with each stage in this process, the constitution had long since been changed beyond recognition. We may make that statement with the confidence born of historical examples beyond enumeration, and Rome is only the best and also because of the sufficiency of the theoretical account of the cycle of regimes offered by Aristotle. The changes described by Aristotle may in the decisive sense be regarded as suffrage changes or revolutions. What accounts for this persistence through change has much to do with Washington's expectations and the actual intentions of the design of American institutions. So what is designed? In the Constitution and I will be wrapping this up shortly do the citizens of the United States truly form one people should they form one people stated another way can a group of people be considered one people if they do not share the most fundamental of principles and views about right and justice or is it acceptable, perhaps beneficial, that the citizenry is fundamentally pluralistic and diverse, having no particular fundamentally shared views in common? Lincoln believed that all regimes are guided by a central idea, a shared view of justice that makes the people a people. This was a very old idea, one expressed by Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and Aquinas and even Jefferson. But this does not mean that we have not outgrown the idea. In fact, many today believe we have. We must question a democracy without shared fundamental principles can long endure. To this end, the practical question of what today unites us, what today divides us, deserves an urgent response. Ben Peterson recently offered one response which I will quote. Beyond membership and reciprocity, further conditions apply to republican citizenship. The idea of the res publica includes a high degree of participation on the part of its members. The Republican citizen does not passively submit to imposed rule, but actively participates in constructing and maintaining the commonwealth, perhaps on an unequal footing, perhaps through representation, or even a monarchical leader or aristocratic body, but in any case, not as a mere subject. In the Republic, each citizen can appeal to laws that shield him from arbitrary rule, and each has a sense of ownership in the community. Peterson did not, however, succeed in finding a foundation of citizenship beyond the positive construction of the polity. To that extent Peterson sustains the idea that citizenship derives from community rather than the reverse. Whereas I here maintain that it is only citizenship, that is the moral and pre-political foundations of citizenship, that is generative. The resulting common good is the offspring rather than the mother Of Moral seriousness It was for a similar reason no doubt that Aristotle identified the nameless virtue as crucial in the formation of community The response I'm looking for therefore is a recovery of the moral seriousness sufficient to found a commonwealth That moral seriousness is the character that informs citizenship and on the strength of which citizens are able to found a Constitution and sustain a community Now, of course, I do not wish to rule out the necessity of statesmanship to sustain such relationships. And I could quote at great length the examples from the founding, perhaps the most significant of which is that James Madison's memorial and remonstrance of 1785, because it points to the way in which this reversal of our common expectation in fact, describes what was the founding perspective on our political relationship. But I'll just summarize it in a word. Madison identified in the memorial and remonstrance a principle of the founding that is not mentioned in the Declaration of Independence or in any of the enumerations of liberties with the exception of some of the state bills of rights. And that principle is conscience itself. And the way Madison defined conscience was, he said, man owes a duty and has obligations to God prior to his obligations to society, to civil community. It's a very important formulation because, of course, if the obligations are prior to community, that means the people having those obligations have a character, are defined prior to the community seeking to define them. On the strength of Madison's demonstration in the Memorial and Remonstrance, therefore, I'm able to show that the decisive foundation of liberty in the United States is not freedom of speech. and It is not freedom of religion understood as worship, to put it in Roosevelt's terms, which is of course already a diminution of the meaning of freedom of religion. It is not any of the long list of freedoms that we tend to identify as enjoyments, whether freedom from want, from fear, or anything else. It is freedom of conscience. It is the sense that man has Obligations that transcend human society, and that those obligations operate through human nature within human beings with compelling force, and no society may stand athwart them. That is the foundation of liberty that is enshrined in the Constitution. That is the foundation of liberty of which we have lost sight in our contemporary discourse. And that, therefore, is the foundation that requires to be reestablished if we are to discover a basis for understanding character as, in fact, the only sure foundation of the perpetuation of our political institutions. Thus, I conclude, liberty means sovereignty. Now, here's an unusual definition that you will find nowhere else. We talk about liberty, we talk about sovereignty as if they're differing things, because liberty belongs to the individual, sovereignty belongs to the political community. But what I'm describing, as James Wilson described it in 1787 and thereafter, is the full sovereign authority of the people prior to any power in the government. And the sovereign authority of the people derives from the liberty founded in conscience that all the people have. So liberty means, above all, sovereignty, which cannot be compromised by political contracts or compacts. We therefore need to revive national character in the United States by reviving our understanding of the sovereignty expressed through the liberty of the individuals prior to anything that is conceded to them by government. It's a familiar expression, which I know you've heard before. Government doesn't create our rights. By our rights, we create our government. That's what I'm describing now. But the only people who can create government by exercising their rights are people who can act in such a way as to act on the basis of prudent judgment and reason, who can act in a coherent and consistent manner, who can act, therefore, with character. In the absence of character, There's no foundation for community. There's no foundation for rights. There's no foundation for limited government. So what I'm describing is fairly fundamental and radical. To revive national character means to revive the republican modalities of our national life. Not only reviving opinions but practices, systematic modes of communication beyond letters from constituents. Now, of course, the best way to accomplish that is to engender a pervasive and constant discourse imbued with the principles here called for. In 1838, Abraham Lincoln called for every mother to whisper the love of liberty to every lisping babe that prattles on her lap. What we need is the grown-up version of that appeal. Casting a light through our public darkness toward a love of republicanism for every aspiring citizen There are details of course to this story As one recurs to the founding Which one can present at some great length And which will bring us to the conclusion that ultimately We need to become founders ourselves That is to say we need to assert and exert the character the founders expected of the people of the United States. and That means to act in the character of a founder at every instance of our national existence. It is in that sense that we can say there is a kind of institutionalized radicalism associated with the idea of liberty. But it is not a radicalism of relativism of anything goes and nothing matter. It's a Radicalism founded in moral seriousness in the dictates of conscience which are fixed Now there's a long discussion and you can ask me questions about conscience And I'll be happy to answer them as I conclude now But let me just wrap this up with the following observations And then we can take those questions So I want to state simply and concretely what it is that human beings long for and what it is a citizen in a free society has a right to claim. And that is the fair opportunity to provide competently by one's own devices for the support of a family brought to maturity and further to secure an old age unencumbered by material embarrassments. That is the meaning of prosperity for the vast number of human beings, and it is the express goal of citizens in a free society. It means not falling into dependence, and therefore calls for those bourgeois virtues of prudence and fidelity that are necessary in order to the accomplishment of such ends. In short, the celebration of national sovereignty in a free society is a celebration of the bourgeois virtues, and therefore of the ordinary citizen, the sturdy yeoman, who's moved by the protest, mother, I'd rather do it myself. It is not a celebration of the exhaustive search for wealth. It's not a celebration of celebrity. It's not a celebration even of genius. Those things will have their place, and in particular, the opportunity to acquire great wealth will be a necessary incident of such a social order. But the summit of worth in such a society is independence in character and circumstance. I repeat again, George Washington, nothing but harmony, honesty, industry, and frugality are necessary to make us a great and happy people. I would maintain therefore, and for that very reason, that a people who become increasingly wards of the state cannot be elevated by the embrace of national sovereignty. They will be patients and not agents. They can only become increasingly subject to dependence and direction. And we may safely reckon that a people who cannot lift their own heads cannot lift up their nation in short we can put America first if by that we mean to put Americans first within the United States while it exists there will always be politics in the United States as everywhere else in the world but there will only be American politics for as long as there are Americans the real political idea of the hour is the idea that there is and must be an American national character Without which, as George Washington put it, we can never hope to be a happy nation. The moral of this story is that while a critical, strategic decision may shape the future of a person or a people, it is character that shapes the decision for good rather than ill. That is what James Madison meant when he wrote, justice is the end of government. It is the end of civil society. It never has been and never will be pursued until it be obtained or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. What this means in practice, I've elucidated above, describing the relationship and differences between the ethics of care and the ethics of production, which are at stake in Roosevelt's Four Freedoms. The substantive contrast between the freedoms of speech and worship and the freedom from poverty in the end demonstrates the distance between freedom understood as agency and freedom understood as passive experience. Want and fear share the unique property of being spurs to agency. That is, to banish them is to banish, for example, the need for courage which is a proper management of fear. Freedom from such conditions or experiences will mean freedom from the ethics both of care and production that are central to the human experience. Moreover, to privilege the ethics of care above the ethics of production is to guarantee diminishing returns over time, the essence of socialism's failure. The ethics of care is very important, but it is not generative. I repeat, that is to say, while it expends the resources needed to provide care, it does not generate those resources. It is therefore self-defeating to substitute the ethics of care for the ethics of production. Only where the ethic of production is in full flower can the ethics of care, and hence the full power of the social reallocation of value, attain its full potential. In brief, socialism fails specifically because the only ideal that it could imagine was one in which people were patients rather than agents in and with the character of citizens. Freedom requires the elevation of character. And that was the truth that I sought to convey years back when I wrote in The Truth About Citizenship. Citizenship belongs not to nations, but to human beings. Tribes, peoples, and nations may have members, but only regimes founded in universal principles can properly have citizens. Okay.